Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your word. And Lord, we desire uh, to just sit at your feet and hear from you today. And so, Lord, in all seriousness, we love you. We're so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful that you've given us your word. You've preserved it in the form that we have on our laps today. We're thankful that you've established this body of believers to come together to encourage and to edify one another. We're thankful that you give us your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. And Lord, you do all of that so amazingly. We thank you that you're coming soon to take us to be with you eternally. And we thank you that along the way you give us abundant life. So Lord, help us just to soak all of that in as much as we can. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. Today we'll just read chapter 33 if you don't mind. That's all I got. So in answer to your question, is that all you got? The answer is, yeah, pretty much. So, that's all I got. Um, Say what? It won't be briefly. briefly. It's going to be exhaustively. Uh, So, chapter 33. We've been reading in Ezekiel, the first 24 chapters or so was God pronouncing warning of coming judgment to the nation of Judah uh, by the mouth of Ezekiel. And we read... A lot of chapters of that, chapter 25 to 32, were warnings of judgment to those nations surrounding the nation of Judah. And uh, now we find ourselves sort of entering into a new section, if you will, 33 to the end of the book, are going to be sort of looking at, uh, 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 if you will, more forward uh, prophetic look at the nation of Israel Uh, collectively the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And yet in the meantime, we have a few of these sort of transitional chapters. This one we find is kind of interesting. Uh, This chapter deals largely with Ezekiel being called to be a watchman. And as we go through that, it's interesting. Um, It's a little bit of a repetition from a a similar, very similar passage that he did in chapter 3. But chapter 3 of Ezekiel was several weeks ago. I didn't go back to the calendar to look. A couple of you have slept since then. So if God repeats it, I repeat it, right? You ever notice that? It's interesting. There's some, you ever notice that? Yeah, it's interesting. You don't know how interesting it is? It's interesting that there are some passages, like for example, the story of when uh, Sennacherib comes up against Uh, Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you may know that story, Uh, they surround the city and Hezekiah prays and with Isaiah and all that. That's mentioned, that that story is like almost verbatim, I want to say at least three times in the scripture. And so God repeats it, he wants us to know that story. 
And so as God repeats, we kind of, that's, that's one of the reasons I love, and if you're new, this is what we do. We go through the Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line. And as we do that, we give the same priority of... Um, the same priority of the volume of Scripture as God does. That's the idea, right? If God says something four times, I want to say it four times. If God wants us to just kind of read it and, you know, move on, then we're going to read it and move on. So that's how that rolls, all right? Are we okay with that? Yeah. Okay, good. Chapter 33. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of, his, of your people and say to them, When I bring a sword upon a land... And the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. We're going to pause there, even though it's the middle of a sentence. That's okay. I want you to know God is speaking to Ezekiel that he is the watchman. Okay? Now, interestingly, I remember when I was a kid, my folks had a, um, a farm near, <clears throat> near Cataract, Indiana, if anybody knows where that is. Um, anybody know where that is? Cataract, Indiana? One of you. More than I thought. Uh, so anyway, that makes two of us. Um, anyway, near Cataract, there was this fire tower. It was kind of an old school fire tower. And basically what it was, was this thing, uh, you know, it seemed like monumental to me as a kid. But, uh, you know, it's about, I'm going to say, 10 or 15 stories of stairs with a little tower. And basically it was, you know, whoever was supposedly, as they said. I mean, it was kind of old and rickety by that time. That was in the 70s. I'm going to assume it's gone. But anyway, the, somebody would walk up to the top of that thing, and, and we used to walk up to the top of it, and you could see, you could basically see the whole county, right? And what they do? They looked, and they saw smoke in the, you know, in the yonder over there, and Call the fire department, and there you go. You got your fire tower. And so the fire tower was sort of the, the place in my mind. When I read about, about Ezekiel's The Watchman, I always think about that when I was a kid and how you could look out, and what are you looking for? You're looking for danger, right? And it's a beautiful picture that God entrusted to Ezekiel. And guess what? As we kind of read through this, God entrusts to us. It is no small thing that God would put us in the watchtower to look out over the territory that we're called to look out over. It is no small thing. So anyway, that's the picture. He goes on. When he sees, verse 3, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who, takes warning will, he who takes warning will save his life. And so, again, the idea, you know, the, the guy would stand up on some high pedestal or tower or whatever, and if he saw, you know, the enemy coming, he looks down to everybody, hey guys, they're coming, then you see what, what, what's going on here. The guy in the tower has a decision to make. Am I, well, he's got a couple decisions. Number one, am I going to be awake? And as we play out this metaphor, number one, am I going to be awake enough to see danger coming? Number two, if I do see danger coming, am I going to be faithful to warn the people? 
That's my, that's my deal, right? Now, the people down in the valley, in the, in the town, whatever, they have a decision to make as well, right? Do we heed the warning or not? Right? Straightforward. Not rocket science yet, right? We may not get into rocket science at all today, but straightforward. Two decisions. The decision of the watchman, the decision of the people. And they each bear their own responsibility. You know, God is speaking to Ezekiel in this passage. And let me just highlight for a second, if I can take our brains to the Ezekiel part, okay? We have a responsibility, you know, when we're warned to respond accordingly. But we also, because he's talking about Ezekiel's the watchman, I want to pause on here for a second. We have a responsibility before God as Christians, okay? If we're Christians, then we are what? Starts with an M. Rhymes with sinister. Minister. Minister, thank you. We are ministers. Now, if you work a secular job, then you're a part-time minister. Is that correct? No. No. We're all in ministry. If we are a Christian, I happen to work, you know, this week, I'll go down to my office. Many of you have been there. By HIPAA, I can't tell you which ones of you have and haven't been there. But I'll go down to my office, right? And I need, if I'm a watchman, if I have the alertness of a watchman, then I know that I'm engaging in ministry. I'm doing a medical service, right? But I'm also, and really much more significantly, I'm engaged in ministry, right? I'm engaged in relationships. I am a watchman in that environment every bit as much as I'm a watchman standing here reading the Bible. It is off the charts vital that we get our head around that. And as full-time ministers, we're all engaged in sort of a watchman kind of a role. Okay? So, that's the reality. Now, here's the other thing that's important. As we are a watchman, I have a sphere of territory that I'm watching, right? And I can't really strive, and and God puts me in that sphere, right? I don't have your sphere to watch over. You get this? I don't have your sphere to watch over. Who's supposed to watch over that sphere? You are. are. Get it? Get it? Because we live in a world of experts. Catch this. We live in a world of experts where it's real easy to kind of pass our responsibilities off on the experts, right? Well, I don't need to know about that because, you know, the government's going to take care of that or the school's going to take care of that or grandma's going to take care of that or whatever, so I don't have to worry about that, right? Your sphere of watchtoweredness is divinely given to you by God. It's, it's, a, it's a very sacred responsibility that you've been given. Yes. Don't sleep on the job. I cannot emphasize that enough. Don't sleep on the job as a watchman. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Now, having said that, let's say you, you say, 
well, I'm going to, I really, you know, my, my territory is kind of boring. I would love to be a watchman in that tower over there. As a matter of fact, I know I'm asleep on the job over here, but man, if I were on that tower over there, I'd be a rock star watchman, right? Does that happen in Christian circles? Yeah. Do we run for office in, in like that tower? You know, I want to run for the president of that tower, right? We don't run for office, right? It doesn't work that way. We're divinely placed as only God can place us at very critical roles and responsibilities, and we call it the body of Christ. And the body of Christ works together in beautiful ways. And you have a sphere of influence that I don't have, and I have a sphere of influence that you don't have. As such, I need to be super responsible for my sphere. You need to be super responsible for your sphere. I need to not strive for your sphere. You need to not strive for my sphere. Does that all make sense? It's very important that we get all that. So anyway, as God leads, as God leads, we are no one else's Holy Spirit. We are no, no one else's Holy Spirit. Now, final principle on this. Not final. I'm probably make some more principles on this. But anyway, is it my job to... Okay, so let's say I'm the watchman over this little village, whatever, right? I see danger coming, and I warn the people. Fair enough? Is it my job to save the people? Have you ever been witnessed to by a salesman? Or have you ever been around somebody that acts like they're, they're preaching on commission? Yeah. Right? Yeah. We don't preach on commission. We preach on faithfulness. Mm-hmm. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Not successful, faithful. I heard a teaching at this conference we went to that Honestly, it's going to resonate in my head for years. From Matthew chapter 25 about, you know, the story uh, about the, the guy who gave one guy five talents, one guy two talents, and one guy one talent, and went away, and he comes back, right? The guy with five talents gained five more. The guy with two talents gained two more. The guy with one buried it and got rebuked, right? But the guy with five and the guy with two, when the, when the man came back, he said, you've been faithful over a few things, right? You don't have to be faithful over many things. You be faithful over what the things that God has given you. No more, no less. That's my job, that's your job, that's everybody's job. And so we don't have to strive for anything else. And our job is not to save anybody. Our job is to warn people. Our job is to encourage people. Our job is to, is to give a message of the Scripture to people and they respond. Is everybody going to respond as we want them to? No. That's, that's their deal, right? Remember the parable of the sower, right? Sower goes out to sow. He sows the Word of God. That's basically what we're doing right now. I'm sowing the Word of God, right? It falls on four different kinds of soil. One kind says, not for me. Okay? It's all right. One kind says, oh, that's awesome. But then three weeks later, you're like, is it still awesome? Right? One kind says, oh, that's awesome, but you know, I'm super busy doing this and doing that and living life. And then one side, one, one, one kind of soil, 
hears that word and bears fruit that gives glory to God. Right? Same, same seed. Same seed. All sown by a sower. Four different responses. So it's not our job to worry about the response. It's our job to give the warning. Yeah. All right? So that's the watchman. Verse 7. No, verse 6. Thank you. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now this is interesting. So the watchman that's asleep on the job, let that not be said of us, by the way, but the watchman that is asleep on the job doesn't give warning when danger comes. And lo and behold, danger comes. The people in the village suffer because of their iniquity. So they bear the consequence for the iniquity. But in some sort of way, it's not like my jo- I'm responsible for you know, your salvation or whatever, right? But I do bear some responsibility somehow for having not warned the people. That should be sobering to us. Because if I don't faithfully carry out the warnings and the encouragement that I've been called to do from my watchtower within my sphere of influence, you'll bear the consequence for your own decisions. But I bear some degree of responsibility. Now, how that plays out, I don't know. That's God's business. But it is a reality. It is a reality. Verse 7, so you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. doesn't say you won the election for getting to be able to be the watchman for the house of Israel. God has made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. You shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. So God decides what areas of watchman ministry we have. We just need to be faithful to hear him and to speak that word. When you say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to... I'm sorry, when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I have required at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. And so here, here's what you have, you know, basically a repeat of the same concept, right? If the wicked man uh, repents, then he's, he's good. But if he does not repent, if he's, if he's been warned and doesn't repent, then the watchman has delivered his own soul, but the guy that didn't repent bears the consequences of that, all right? Therefore, you, O son of man, verse 10, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now, God is anticipating the excuse of the Jews. The excuse, he says, Basically, we got to catch this. He says to Ezekiel, you give these guys a warning, this nation of Judah that's been so rebellious. You give them the warning. Now, if they say to you, 
we're too far gone. Our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away. Literally, the word means we just rot away, right? We're so far gone. If they say to you, we're so far gone, there's no hope for us, then you say to them, Thus says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Therefore, turn, turn from your evil ways. So, no one is ever so far gone that they shouldn't be warned. No one is ever so far gone that they shouldn't be warned. And so what we have here, we have this, this, this opportunity that we see in the Scripture that there's always an opportunity to repent. And so as we faithfully administer our watchman duties, right? it's not our job to say, oh, that guy's too far gone. There's no chance for him. And it's not his responsibility. I mean, and he also shouldn't say, I'm too far gone. There's no chance for me. Right? But sometimes we kind of have that attitude a little bit. Right? We need to always be faithful to whoever we're called to speak to. And I think there's also this thing. Sometimes I'll get in a conversation. You may, you may resonate with this a little bit. Sometimes I'll get in a conversation with a person, and it's starting to go a little spiritual. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Uh, maybe somebody, you know, like not in this, I mean, conversations here always go spiritual, right? But in my secular part of my full-time ministry, I might have a conversation with somebody, and it starts to go a little bit spiritual, and, or they might express some sort of openness to God or something like that, and, it's, and it's, it's pretty vague, right? You ever had one of these conversations? And in your mind now, you start having this dialogue, right? Well, you should just lay it out for them, right? And then usually in your head, there's the other side of your head, some, somewhere along the lines like, if we're honest with ourselves, the other side of our head says, I'm really not in the mood for this right now. I don't feel like it. Anybody ever had it? It's just me? No. I'm just like, I don't want to deal with the response. I don't think that, I think, Lord, I hear what you're saying, but I hear what you're saying over here, but I, I really don't think that guy's going to, I think he might actually punch me in the face. Anybody ever been punched in the face for witnessing to anybody? Okay, no, no, but that doesn't happen in our civilized society. We're way too tame for that, right? But there is a thing, and check me on this. Whenever we're called, I believe, whenever we're called to be the watchman, very often it's almost like there's a, there's a, a hurdle of energy that we have to expend. Does that make sense? It's like, we've got to do a little work. But it's like, the Holy Spirit is in, our, is in our heart. Jeremiah says, like a burning fire. Like your words were in me like a burning fire. And let me just encourage us. When we find ourselves in that situation, go for it. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Be responsible. Be responsible. Live like it matters. Yeah. Because it does. So, verse 12, Therefore, you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, 
The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his righteousness. As for the state of the people, the righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his wickedness. As, far as, as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day as, that he turns from his wickedness, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Doesn't it sound like that there's Romans chapter 7, there's a passage where Paul says, you know, I, I want to do what I don't want to do, but I don't want to do what I do want to do, but I do want to do what I don't want to do, and I don't remember what I am supposed to remember that I did want to do, right? It's like, where are we at here? Here's what he's saying. If a person is steeped in sin and they repent, it's like none of the sin is remembered, right? But here's the tricky thing. If a person is righteous and they trust in their own righteousness so that they kind of forget about God, then they're responsible for that decision and none of their righteousness will be remembered. Now, do we like that verse? Not so much. You know, if that's like your top 10 favorite verses, right? Like, all my righteousness won't be remembered. No, we don't like that. And so, if you'll bear with me, I told you before, you know, when God repeats himself, we repeat him, you know, we repeat as well. I think there's a thing here, and because we're in these passages, if you've been around here for a while, you're going to say, there he goes again. Just get it off your chest. There he goes again. Okay. If you're relatively new, you may or may not have heard me talk about this, but I think it's important that we lay this down because all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. Is that fair? And this is a challenging Scripture uh, in terms of human responsibility. But here we go. I believe the Scripture teaches equally that man is completely responsible for his sin. I think of this as like a spectrum. Say it. There he goes again. Yeah, there he goes. I'm sorry. It's like a spectrum. I believe this is like a spectrum. On one hand, you've got man is responsible for his sin. These verses that we're reading today highlight that big time. Okay? There's a principle of sowing and reaping. Whatever man sows, he shall also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he reaps corruption. If he sows to the spirit, he reaps everlasting life. Right? Adam and Eve ate the fruit. There was a consequence. Eternally right? That's a biblical truth. On the other hand, there's a thing, a three-letter word, or three-dollar word, however the figure speech goes, three-peso word that is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty means God is God. He has attributes that we can't even comprehend. God knows everything. God is all-loving. God is all-knowing. God is God is God. And because God is God, He's so awesome that we can't even fully comprehend Him, much less try to... I mean, if we could fully understand Him, then He wouldn't be God. He'd be human, right? So by nature of who He is, that's who He is. Now, there's a, there's a very real teaching in the Scripture that God's the one that saves us, Right? Ephesians chapter 2, not by works, lest any man should boast, 
So it's like that sowing and reaping, that's not, you know, we're saved by God, right? God is the one who saves us. God even is the one who makes us want to be saved, right? And without God, without the Holy Spirit drawing us into a relationship with Him, we wouldn't even want to. We're that sinful by nature, right? So, how am I saved? By making the right decisions or because God just saved me? Yes. Right? Both are true. Now, here's where I think we need to keep this in mind. As you, hear it play, as you see it played out in the lives of Christians, and as you see Christians even talk and interact and how they, how they roll, if you will, I think of it like this. I think we're, every one of us is at some spot on that spectrum. Some of us are may, way more geared towards God's sovereignty. Some of us are way more geared towards human responsibility. And we're all sort of somewhere in between. And here's what I want to say as the body of Christ, because I'm not naive to the fact that we all come to, oftentimes, we come to a place like this from a variety of backgrounds. Is that fair? A variety of life situations, a, lot, a variety of family situations, a variety of church situation, a d- variety of doctrinal backgrounds. That's awesome. I want to embrace that, right? I don't want us to be like so uniform that we can't embrace being different, right? Some people are wi- way more uh, wired for sovereignty. Some people are way more wired for, God's respo- for man's responsibility. Okay? That's totally okay. Our job is not to... My job is not to get you to the same point that I'm at on that spectrum. Right? My job, honestly, as a Bible teacher, my job is to say, here's the warnings of falling off the end of the... off the cliff spectrum on this side, and here's the warnings of falling off the cliff on this side. Fair enough? And here they are. Falling off the cliff of human responsibility is, as we said before, like it's somehow my job to make sure that that person is saved, right? And you've heard this before. You've heard this from um, preachers probably over the years. You know that lady at Walmart, the cashier? Had kind of a sad look in her eyes. Did you notice that? You know, if you don't witness to her right now, she might go to hell forever, and it'll be your fault because you didn't give her the right warning. Is that a trip? That's a trip. That's falling off the cliff of human responsibility into the realm of manipulation, right? We don't need to manipulate anybody, right? The Holy Spirit motivates people way better than I do. Way more, way cleaner than I do, right? With way more precision than I do. My job is to just explain the Scripture as best as I can see it. My job is not to manipulate you into manipulating anyone else, okay? That's falling off the cliff this way. Falling off the cliff this way on, man, on God's sovereignty is, you know, God, 
God's sovereign. You know, God knew that some people were going to go to heaven, some people were going to go to hell. Tough luck for the ones that are going to hell. I've seen this attitude amongst sovereignty people. If I can say this as graciously as I can, this one burdens me. This one burdens me. Well, they both burden me, but this one burdens me. God, it says twice in, this, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God is not willing that any should perish. I'm going to read it so I don't butcher it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many people on planet Earth does God desire to be saved? Everybody. Every last one. And sometimes sovereignty people can have sort of a too bad, so sad attitude for those that are lost. Is that the heart of God? No, no way. Please, if you're if you're prone toward sovereignty, can I ask you to memorize 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4? Right? Is that all right? I'll give you a... Nate always teases me about my little, my little games, right? What's 2 squared? 4. 1 Timothy 2, 4. You say, well, why'd you do that? Second Peter, what's 3 squared? 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. Turn there. says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How many people does God want to repent? All. 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 And why do I go through all this? Because, frankly, you turn back to Ezekiel now. I go through this because, honestly, this watchman passage is probably the most uh, I don't know what, want to say extreme, but probably the most uh, specific and in many cases troublesome passages regarding man's responsibility. Like, are you kidding me? Like if I, if I turn away from the Lord, all the, things that, all the good things I did will be forgotten? That doesn't sound very good, Right? But that's the reality. And so we always have to interpret Scripture in the context of the whole Scripture. And the context of the whole Scripture is somehow man's responsibility is a biblical truth. And somehow, yet God's sovereignty is a biblical truth. And so here's how I see it. You know, we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line through the Bible, right? And in my mind, I want us to, you know, as... as and, you know, as, as I've gone through and listened to other pastors over the years, right? Like, if I want to know what's their take on man's responsibility, I'd probably look up what do they have to say about Ezekiel 33, right? If you, if you come from a more sovereignty background, right, you know that probably you like to read Romans chapter 9, right? We don't, we don't turn there in the interest of time, but that's like a big sovereignty chapter, right? If you go back to uh, you know, most teachers talking about Romans chapter 9, they teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's, you know, the recordings are out there, right? 
That's where you go for that. And so it's kind of like, if you think of it, we got to talk about these things in the context of Ezekiel chapter 33, but we got to talk about them in the context of the whole scripture. So there you go. That's, that's all of that. One final verse before we leave this idea. Philippians chapter 2. I've said this before, so bear with me if, before you say there he goes again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, I think are the best practical balances of these concepts. The pr- best practical balance of these concepts. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have, all, all, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Is that a responsibility sentence or a sovereignty sentence? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's responsibility. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will, to even have the desire, and to do for his good pleasure. Is that a sovereignty sentence? That's a sovereignty sentence. So there you have both of them together. And to me, that's the most practical application, or the most practical verse, verses put together regarding the two, two things. Now, how does it play out practically? Playing out practically is, I need to live like I'm responsible for my decisions. I need to live like I'm responsible for my actions. But I don't, I don't trust in myself. I rest in the goodness of God. I rest in the sovereignty of God. I rest in the fact that God loves me, and I'm just responding to His love. But I've, I've noticed... Over the years, there is a very real thing that happens in the body of Christ. There are those that forget about human responsibility. They think, what does it matter? I gave my heart to the Lord when I was 12 years old. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Whatever. Now I just kind of, you know, it's not like I'm... a chainsaw masker type of person, right? I'm just like doing my own thing. It's not like I'm evil. I'm just doing my own thing. That is way too common of an attitude in the body of Christ. Right? We are responsible for our actions. There is a very real principle of sowing and reaping. You want to live the abundant life, right? Then live like it depends on you, right? But you want to live a peace, peaceful life? You want to live without striving? Realize that it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Right? So, all that to say, these are responsibility verses. Verse 14, again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. If he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Now, why would God tell Ezekiel this part? Because the people that Ezekiel's talking to are sinners who need to repent, right? And so God is, telling, is reminding these guys, there's a golden opportunity here for you to repent, I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm telling you, you're not too far gone. You're not going to pine away in your sin. You're gonna, you have opportunity to live. So take it. But notice here, what does repentance look like? 
it looks like he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right. He restores the pledge. He gives back what was stolen, and he walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, right? Remember Jesus, the woman, they, uh, John chapter 8, I believe, they brought him a woman caught in adultery, and he says, he who is who without sin cast the first stone. You know that story, right? And they all walk away, and the woman's sitting there. What does he say? Hey, you're forgiven. Is that all he says? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Live as if you repented, right? You remember Old Testament Saul, King Saul, right? Chased David down for about 10 years, honestly, trying to kill him. And there were a couple of occasions where David spared, David had opportunity to kill Saul, but he spared his life, right? And you read these, they're just horribly sappy. Um, I mean, with all due respect to the Scripture, Paul's word, or Saul's words were horribly sappy. Like, you know, David spares his life, and Saul's like, oh, David, you're, you're so much more honorable than I am. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. You're right. You are going to be the next king. I, why am I even chasing you down to try to kill you? I'm just, you know, wow, 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 right? Of, da- of Saul expressing what sounds like repentance. Is it repentance? No. It's remorse. Remorse is real. Remorse is real. Remorse is, I feel bad for what I did. Repentance is, I feel so bad for what I did that I'm going to make a turn, right? And we know that Saul didn't repent because he kept trying to kill David until the time of his own death, right? Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, right? He feel bad afterwards? Yeah, he felt bad. So did he then uh, give the money back and uh, go and repent and get right with God and then live honorably for the rest of his life? No, he went and hung himself. Was that repentance? No. I don't think so. Now Peter, on the other hand, night before Jesus died, denied him three times. Is that, is that wrong? That's way wrong, right? Did Peter repent? You bet he did. You bet he did. Do we have opportunity to repent? We always have opportunity to repent. We always have opportunity to repent. So, verse 17. Yet the children of your people say, the way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. Now, let me just say briefly, the fundamental, one of the fundamental laws of humanity, there's sort of the law of gravity, right? Can we defy gravity? No. Not really, right? One of them is God is God and we are not, yeah. right? So who makes the rules? God does. God decides what's fair. And by the way, whenever you think that God's not fair, ask yourself, so what do I deserve eternally? Right? We're all sinners, right? We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. We all sin. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And as we said earlier, 
I'm convinced in the eternal scheme of things, we wouldn't even have a desire to seek the Lord if He didn't put that desire in us. So we're all sinners. We're all rotten to the core sinners. There's none, there's none like sort of sinners and some horrible sinners and some in between. We're all rotten to the core sinners. That's our reality. That's our existence. And it is not fair that we should have opportunity to go to heaven. So whenever we have chance, that's God's mercy, right? And whenever we have a temptation to say, well, God's not fair, we need to recognize, yeah, He's beyond fair, and He makes the rules. And so we let God be gone, and we uh, surrender to His will accordingly. No, now, having said that, we gladly do that because we know of His goodness. Ephesians 1 through 3, right? All about how good God is, God, how good God is, how good God is. Therefore, we serve Him. That's the book of Ephesians. God is good. God is good. God is amazingly good. God is off the charts good. Therefore, we serve Him. Simple as that. Verse 21, And it came to pass, in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came and said to me, came to me and said, the city has been captured. So, here again, keep in mind, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's speaking to a group of captives that were captured uh, years earlier. Uh, the final destruction of Jerusalem and the conquering of them by Babylon has just happened. And so by the time they hear of it, it's, it takes several months for that person to come back and, and escape to Babylon and give the word. But, uh, so he brings the word. And um, now Ezekiel knows that Jerusalem has fallen. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man came who had escaped. And he had opened my mouth. So when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. You may recall earlier in the book, chapter 3, verse 26, God had told Ezekiel that his speech was going to be restricted so that he'd be mute except for what God put in his mouth. Wouldn't that be awesome? If I were mute except for what God put in my mouth? Never say anything stupid ever again. Never say anything stupid ever again. Only say what God put in my mouth, right? That would be awesome. Wow. Relationships. Can you imagine relationships? Right? So anyway. That only happens to people like Ezekiel, I guess. So anyway, now uh, he's been unmuted and uh, he's going to be able to talk. Then the word of the Lord, verse 23, came to me saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one and he inherited the land, but we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Now, this speaks to the nature of human beings. And we are human beings. And so I'm tempted to read this and say, those people were nuts, right? Are you tempted to say that? Just say it. See if it feels good. Those people were nuts, right? But guess what? We're capable of that, right? We're way capable of that. And so here's the point. Babylon came in in 605 B.C. Captured a bunch of captives in Jerusalem, took them to Babylon. Came back in 597 B.C., takes a bunch of captives off to Babylon. During all that time, 
people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying, you guys need to repent because it's coming. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy this place. And even you read a lot about it in Jeremiah. There are false prophets that are saying, no, we just need to regroup ourselves and everything's going to be fine. No, Jeremiah says, destruction's coming. Babylon is coming. They're going to destroy this place, burn it with fire, the whole nine yards, take you all captive off to Babylon. It's coming. No, it's not. The false prophets say, all we've got to do is, you know, whatever, and, and we'll ward off the Babylonians. Well, sure enough, 586 B.C., Babylon destroys Jerusalem. And even after that, after almost 20 years of, of getting thumped in three successive campaigns by the Babylonians, and they finally do bring destruction exactly as the prophets of God had stated. And big, another big bunch of them gets carried off to Babylon, and there's a remnant left there in Jerusalem, left there by the Babylonian people, by the Babylonian soldiers. There's a remnant left there in Jerusalem. And they say, you know, this burned out city, I think that was an accident. I think we really need to take the city back. Really? Really? At what point does God get our attention? I mean, there are some people that God, that are so hard, responsibility, that are so hard that they're not going to get it. That's the reality. That's the reality. These people are those kind of people. Am I capable of that? I've got to be careful. I've got to act like I'm responsible in that regard. Right? Now, I'm also a sovereignty person, right? So I know that God saves me. God sustains me. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He did that work in me. He's going to complete it in me. But I need to act like I better be careful. Get it? You see this dynamic that we have? Right? It's a little bit of a sacred dance, if you will, between the two. But we've got to be aware of both of them. And so anyway, these guys are so hard. They remain in Jerusalem. They said, you know what the problem was? Now, Abraham... God gave him that land, and there was only one of him. There's a bunch of us. We're entitled to that land because we're children of Abraham. Is there anything we think we might be entitled to that we're entitled to it because of something, we're descendants of somebody, or our great uncle was a pastor, or... I mean, I hear that one all the time, right? Uh, or we grew up in church or whatever like that. No, we're responsible for the decisions that we make, the sowing and reaping that we choose in our own lives. And so these guys thought they were entitled to the, to the land. And God says, therefore, say to them, verse 25, thus says the Lord, you, may, you eat meat with blood, you lift up your eyes toward your idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword and you, you commit abominations and you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Say thus to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the ruins shall fall by the sword and the one who is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured. And those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence 
for I will make the land most desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I have made the land most desolate because of all their abominations with which they have committed. And so God says, I'm going to, sooner or later, I am going to bring so, such destruction and such punishment that one day they're going to know that I am the Lord. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So everybody's going to know that one day, right? And even as you read through Jeremiah, right, you may recall these guys, they went off to Egypt and they're looking for more help from Egypt. And Jeremiah says, don't do that. And they wind up dying in Egypt and it was a big, ugly mess, right? When we hear the warnings of God, we need to heed the warnings of God. When God disciplines us, we need to receive it. And then finally, he closes out. As for you, verse 30, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So, we hear the word being taught like this, right? It might sound like, uh, you know, my words might sound like a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, right? Is that what my words sound like? Yes. There are some that will come and they'll say, oh, that sounds awesome. And it doesn't change their life one bit, right? I don't want you to say, wow, that was awesome. And it doesn't affect your life one bit. And... That's okay from my perspective because it's not dependent upon me, right? I'm the watchman for this room right here right now. I've been called by God to stand here and read His Word, to sow His Word, right? Now, as Jesus taught, that Word's going to fall on different kinds of soil, right? And let me just encourage us. That's just a reality, but wouldn't it be awesome if everybody in the room decides to be the good soil that would bear fruit, that would bring glory and honor to God? Wouldn't that be awesome? Should we expect that? Well, if God wants to do that, that's God's business, right? My job is just to be faithful to what I'm supposed to do. Your job is to be faithful to what you're supposed to do. If you're in the watchtower, and we all are in some sort of a watchtower, don't fall asleep. Don't neglect your responsibilities. Live your life as if it matters. But along the way, trust the goodness of God. Trust the sovereignty of God. Trust that the only reason you're doing this in the first place is because God saved you by His grace. So we're all ministers. Our job is to be faithful over a few things. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. Let God produce the results. 
And if we're called to repent, repent. If we're called to change the right and move in the different direction, if God makes us aware of something we're doing wrong, maybe we weren't even aware of it. God makes us aware of it, just respond. Be teachable. That's called being teachable. We need to be those kind of people. And just know that God wants to have fellowship with us. God, God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whosoever, not just the elect chosen few, but so whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the opportunity that we all have, right? And as believers, we all have a responsibility to be the watchman just like Ezekiel. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that you use us for your purposes. Lord, I wouldn't, if I were you, I wouldn't trust me with your purposes. But you trust us and you use us. And yet through all that, you remain sovereign. You guide and lead, direct the pages of history and our very lives. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be on the alert. Help us to be diligent. Help us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling knowing that it's you who works in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. So have your way with us, Lord. Please guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.